Welcome to the Littler Workplace Policy Institute podcast, insider briefings on the latest legislative and regulatory developments affecting employers. Hello, and thank you for joining us today as we preview Littler's Workplace Policy Institute's annual Labor Day report. I'm Michael Lotito, the co-chair of WPI, and I'm joined by my good friend and colleague, Jim Peretti, a WPI shareholder in Washington, D.C. Jim? How are things in the nation's capital these days? Hey, good morning, Michael. Well, we've got congressional gridlock, brutal heat, and a plague of biblical proportions. No locusts as yet, but, you know, it's still early in the season. So, uh, But we're surviving. Like so many listeners, we're all adapting to a you know, new normal. So uh, the dry cleaning bill is down. The wine bill is high. But uh, I, I think most of us are ready to just put this summer in the rearview mirror which is what Labor Day traditionally has been for. Well, you know, at least it's what it used to be for. So we're getting by. Well, I'm uh, I'm glad to hear that. You know, August in Washington used to be everyone's downtime and the chance to recharge, but it didn't seem that way to me this year, even with the Congress out. With so much going on, I feel like we're still in the thick of things uh, with a heck of a lot more to come. But let's get focused on what we're here to talk about today our Labor Day report. This is our third annual report on the state of labor and employment law in the United States. And this year, more than ever, I think it's a must read given how the COVID pandemic has impacted the American workplace. It was posted this morning on our website, which is www.litler.com. What are we looking at this year, Jim? Uh, well, let me say, this is certainly not the report we thought we would be writing when we sat down to you know, sketch out our outline back in January. The events of the last six, now seven months, have had such a dramatic effect on all of us, changing the way we live fundamentally, uh, and really no place have we seen that to be more true than in the workplace, where millions of Americans have found themselves out of work, while millions more who may be grateful to still have their jobs are adjusting to new routines and really almost a new definition of what it means, uh, you know, to work. Uh, someone jokingly said, oh, I'm, I'm working from home. And someone, a friend of mine said, really, it's more like living at work these days. And I think for many, many of us, we're very grateful to still be working, but it's, it's um, an adjustment of historic proportions, like nothing we've ever seen in our lifetime. Well, it certainly is a big adjustment every day now. My commute consists of walking approximately 10 steps from one floor to another in my condo. But, you know, on, on this impact issue that we're talking about, uh, we engage an economist to do a deep dive in an unemployment situation. And, and the numbers are, are startling. The total number of workers receiving unemployment benefits in June increased 1,000% over last year's numbers. 1,000%. By July, private sector employment remained down by over 9%, and about 100 million people classified themselves as, quote, unavailable for work. So the virus has really led millions of people to just stop seeking work altogether. Our report analyzes the impact of these job losses, seeing who was hardest hit by these downturns, both in terms of demographics and by industry. Not surprisingly, hotel, lodging, food service, and retail were hardest hit, with each of these sectors seeing a staggering numbers of jobs lost. 
we give an in-depth analysis of these figures and we try to predict using objective criteria some trends as to what we might see going forward. Well, frankly, Michael, I think you're right. We, you know, we will see recovery. It may be slower than many of us had hoped. But what struck me in preparing this report is that while we will at some point you know, return to something resembling what the pre-pandemic workplace was like, I think there are some fundamental changes in how we work that are going to far outlast the impact of COVID. I'm thinking of things like telework, for example. I read the other day that something like 95% of commercial office space in DC was vacant. And I don't mean unrented, I mean vacant as in not occupied because so many workers were telecommuting. I mean, that's presented challenges for employers and employees alike. Uh, and I think that even after we pass through this, you know, the worst part of this pandemic, it's gonna be much more of many people's lives to be working from home or working remotely at least some of the time. That in turn has downstream effects on everything from commercial real estate to restaurants. I mean, other businesses that are situated in business districts. I think ultimately the long-term economic effects of this are gonna take years for us to fully comprehend, even after we've seen you know, something returning to normalish levels of unemployment and work engagement. I, I think this has been so great an impact that it's gonna be years before we fully understand what this has wrought. Well, we're clearly in a time of workforce transformation. There's no doubt about that and the impact is going to be felt perhaps for a generation or two. And a lot of the businesses that are in the middle of all of this, they've either changed their model to accommodate people working remotely or other sectors have emerged to fill the gap. You know, I'm thinking of, for example, the so-called gig economy and things like food and grocery delivery services. They've seen an enormous uptick in their businesses. And I suspect some of that is going to last long after COVID has passed. That could change a significant way in which a lot of people work. Same thing with independent contracting, which we discussed at some length in our report. The rise of the gig economy, virtual and on-demand services, is likely to continue to see a sea change for at least some sectors of the economy. The question is, will we be ready for it? And will policymakers on the state and federal level be open to new approaches to working in the independent contractor model, which is so important for so many people to gain at least some income as they continue to strive to survive the pandemic. Well, I'm in the country of California, and the answer seems to be a resounding no, as the state legislature continues to aggressively push a traditional employee-based model to the detriment of new approaches to work. That's a story for another report and another podcast. And I'm happy to say we do have another report and we did do another podcast. And for those that are interested, you can find those on our website as well. Jim, what else did we discuss in the Labor Day report? Well, we are lawyers. So what else would we discuss? Uh, lawsuits. It's probably no surprise, but we've already seen sort of races to the courthouse with employers across the country facing hundreds of COVID-related lawsuits. Many of these are what I would call exposure suits, alleging either an employee or a customer or a vendor contracted the virus at a business or a work site. But we're also starting to see claims of discrimination, retaliation, denial of leave benefits, you know, those sorts of claims under traditional labor and employment laws. And I think, frankly, as we start to return folks to the workplace, the trickle of those lawsuits may soon turn into a spigot. And we've also seen, you know, the plaintiffs bar press some pretty novel theories, uh, such as, you know, the tort law 
public nuisance theory, which might you know, allow them, or certainly they're attempting to evade things like the workers' compensation bar when it comes to employees who may have been exposed to COVID. So this is going to continue to be, you know, I, th I think the wave is, hasn't even begun to crest yet. And I think as fall comes along, we're going we're gonna to see these numbers start to go through the roof. Well, Jim, as you know, we've been tracking those lawsuits on both a national and state and local level. They now number more than about 600, including dozens of class action lawsuits and a number of copycat claims. In the report, we examined those lawsuits that the employers are facing, and we flag a number of issues that employers should be aware of as they navigate returning to work and reopening of their workplaces. This is especially important since it seems fairly clear that this may not be a V-shaped recovery and that we may be dealing with a longer-term recession and some people even predicting a recession inside a recession. So while unemployment claims are slowly improving, we're seeing a lot of data that suggests that temporary layoffs and furloughs are becoming permanent job losses and there may be more to come. Yeah, and well, frankly, I mean, that's that's troubling news on a number of fronts, um, you know, both sort of on the large scale economic level, but also it is it is something we discuss in our report that employers should be aware of and concerned about. For example, employers who are contemplating workforce separations should be mindful of the federal WARN Act. Um, that's the Worker Adjustment and Retraining Notification Law that requires employers when they're closing facilities of a certain size or laying off a significant number of workers to provide notice to employees and to state workforce agencies. Now, there are some exceptions under the WARN Act, and at the beginning of the pandemic, I think there was more room to argue that some of these job losses were excluded from the WARN Act requirements and notice because they were caused by completely unforeseeable circumstances. No one in February could have predicted what March would look like in terms of job losses and plant closures. But as we move further along in this pandemic and as the economic impacts continue to ripple, I think it may be difficult for employers to make some of these arguments. So certainly if, as you're returning to work, if you're contemplating separations, you should be mindful of the requirements under the Federal WARN Act, as well as you know, a number of state mini WARN Acts, which often dictate their own requirements. At the same time, most of these statutes usually include some sort of a look back provision. So let's say there's a you know threshold number of employees that trigger the act. If you've done X in September and Y in October, there may be a 60 or 90 day look back. So employers who are bringing folks back in and discovering they're gonna have to convert furloughs into permanent job losses, highly advised to consult with counsel to make sure they're doing so in accordance with all of these state and federal notice requirement laws. Jim, that could of course be the tip of the iceberg. We're starting to see numbers that show that the longer people are out of work, the more we will see increases in those kinds of claims. The federal paid sick and family leave laws, you know, we've, we've seen claims already, but as workers are being called back to work, many of whom will face the prospect of schools closed, online instruction for their children, total lack of available childcare, Again, those claims are, are sure to go up. Yeah, Michael, I, th I think you're absolutely right. And on that note, one thing we do explore in some detail in our Labor Day report is what legislative action has been taken to date in response to COVID-19, including dramatic expansion of unemployment benefits, the new sick and family leave laws that you mentioned, 
and a bunch of other things that we've seen Congress do in response to the pandemic. Maybe more important, we discuss what is currently on the table as Congress is set to reconvene for sort of the last few short weeks before they recess for the November elections. Back in the spring, we saw a number of pieces of legislation enacted in like rapid fire speed. And while they were, you know, fiercely negotiated on both sides, they were ultimately passed with broad bipartisan support. By the start of the summer, in contrast, that spirit of cooperation seemed to have evaporated. At the end of May, the U.S. House of Representatives passed a $3.5 trillion package of COVID relief, including expansion of those sick leave mandates, hazard pay for workers, billions of dollars for states and localities whose budgets have been decimated by the pandemic. But that bill was pretty much dead on arrival in the Senate, where they took much more of a wait-and-see approach. By the end of July, the leadership in the Senate had unveiled their own legislative package, significantly smaller with about a trillion-dollar price tag. That, that counts as small these days. But negotiations between the House, the Senate, and the White House dragged on for weeks and ultimately went nowhere. Now, both houses are set to return for what's likely to be the final real session before the election and maybe a lame duck session in the fall. But the fate of any further COVID relief is unclear. Both sides appear to have softened some in their demands and offered up sort of light versions of what they had originally proposed, but they are still miles apart. And of course, Congress will need to pass a spending bill to continue funding the government past the end of the fiscal year in September. So if there's any chance of any more COVID relief, uh, it's probably going to be wrapped up in that must-pass grand bargain legislation at the 11th hour. And we all know how those bills tend to turn out. Well, we sure do. You know, you pass 900-page bills that no one possibly could have read, let alone understand. And we wind up dealing, and employers wind up dealing, and employees wind up dealing with the unexpected consequences. And that gets to the issue of liability shields. A number of states have already enacted laws that protect businesses from claims of COVID exposure, generally giving them a defense if they were acting in good faith in order to comply with state, local, or federal COVID guidances, which are constantly changing and constantly being updated. But on the federal level, we got nothing. Ah, yeah, you're absolutely right. It's worth noting that in the Senate's proposal, there are a number of provisions that would shield employers, both from the sorts of exposure claims that we've talked about, but equally important from lawsuits under a range of federal civil rights and labor laws. Now, to be clear, we're talking about providing protection where an employer was acting in good faith, making attempts to comply with the applicable guidance, which, as you point out, you know, can sometimes change from day to day, if not week to week. So this is not a get-out-of-jail-free card. Similarly, with respect to franchising, the Senate bill provides that, you know, where a franchisor, a national franchisor, is providing assistance with response to COVID, say maybe you know, maintaining best practices for a safe workplace or providing training materials or assistance in sanitizing and cleaning up the workspace. These efforts won't be used against them down the road to try to tag them as joint employers or otherwise hold them liable and maybe in a completely unrelated lawsuit. But you know, joint employment, that's another issue we could spend an hour discussing on its own. Uh, but the Senate package does include provisions that would you know, provide some protection for employers here. It really is going to be a matter of just what makes it into a final package, if there is one, and what ends up on the uh, cutting room floors, they used to say. Jim, I think one thing is absolutely clear. There are many more podcasts in our future 
because these issues are just going to continue to evolve. On that note, I want to highlight that our Labor Day report attempts to make some predictions. It's always a gamble under the best of circumstances, and certainly trying to figure out where our recovery is headed and how quickly we're going to get there may very well be a fool's errand. But perhaps we're just fools. So we look at a number of instructive benchmarks, ranging from the Consumer Confidence Index, the BLS reports, and other trends in unemployment claims and what they may tell us about where things are headed. And we'll continually update those as we go forward. And perhaps finally, well, this is only a little bit of a commercial, it's more of a save the date. As we start to look at this fall's election may mean for employers and labor and employment policy. Sitting here today, it's an entirely open question as to who is going to prevail in November. And while that is of critical importance at the top of the ticket, it will be equally important as to where the balance of power in Congress shakes out. Will Republicans hold the Senate or will there be a shift to Democratic control? If there is a shift to Democratic control, will the filibuster stand or will it be eliminated? Those procedural issues, those dynamics, make a huge impact in the legal landscape. Because as we oftentimes say, elections matter. So now is a good time to mention that WPI will be issuing its election day report as soon as we know what November's results are, which may be on the morning of November the 4th, but I have a sneaking suspicion that it may take a little bit longer than that to figure it all out. We'll go live with our election report, and we've scheduled another webinar to discuss the outcomes or potential outcomes or a combination of the two for Friday, November the 6th. Again, the information is available on our website at www.littler.com, and we urge you to sign up and listen in. Well, Michael, I look forward to joining you on that webinar, and we'll see what uh, you know what the results are and what we think we can predict about the future going forward. Again, for listeners, mark the date, Friday, November 6, 2020. That's the Friday after Election Day. You can hear Michael and I giving our best review of what's happened and predictions as to what is to come in the future. But I know the next 60 days are going to be as the old proverb says, you know, may you be cursed to live in interesting times. I think that is what we will be seeing over the next 60 days. It's been good to chat this morning, Michael, about the Labor Day report. And as always, the last word is yours. Well, there's some good news here that we want to convey based upon Friday's job reports. We added 1.4 million jobs. The unemployment rate declined to 8.4%, which was almost a two percentage point drop. The unemployment rate had been 14.7% in April. So this is a very significant decline. And the total number of unemployed is about 13.6 million, which is down from about 28 million. So these things evolve and we get some good news from time to time. But we also have to put all of those numbers in perspective because the total number of people unemployed in the United States today is 7.8 million more than it was in February. The unemployment number does not include another 7 million people who, based upon the statistical model, have quote unquote stopped looking for work. 
The U6 rate, which is really the most important indicator as it takes into account the total workforce, is down to 61.7%, which is 1.7% lower than it was in February. And you know, in February, we had an all-time high of 164 million people working in the United States. And that number today, based upon the Friday report, is 147 million or 17 million people less and 25 million of those 147 million are part-time, many of them not by choice. So these numbers are gonna to continue to evolve and we'll get good news and bad news and we'll try to continue to read the tea leaves. But there's one other point that perhaps we should close on. Those are a lot of numbers, but every one of those numbers represents a real person a real person who may be struggling with someone in their family or perhaps themselves with a COVID illness. Those numbers include individuals that are struggling to figure out how to return to work, not return to work, taking into account the obligations that they have to their children, who may be distance learning, who may be some combination of distance learning and in-person school, and what are the implications that all of that may have for the health of those children and their families? It's real people like business owners who perhaps have lost their lifetime savings because those businesses have already closed or business owners who are trying to figure out how they have enough cash to survive and will Congress give them another shot at survival? These numbers are really about America. They're about whether or not America is doing better or worse. It's about America that's facing very important choices on November the 3rd in a nation that continues to be extraordinarily partisan. When you look at all of this, it's easy to get down in the dumps. And I think all of us have had the absolute right to be a little depressed from time to time. But there's one thing we know about America. We are an extraordinarily resilient people. We have demonstrated time and time again, our ability to overcome the most significant, the most pressing, the most daunting obstacles. After all, whoever would have thought that we would have beat the British back in the 1700s. So somehow we're gonna come through this and somehow we're gonna come through it and we'll be better for it. May be hard to see that today, but I leave you with a sense of confidence and hope that America will always prevail. Take care of yourselves, be safe, and we'll talk to you again soon. The purpose of this program is to provide helpful information for employers addressing the latest developments in labor and employment relations. It is not a substitute for experienced legal counsel and does not provide legal advice or attempt to address the numerous factual issues that arise in any employment-related issue. To discover other labor and employment podcast series from Littler, the largest global employment and labor law practice, visit littler.com slash podcasts.